This is your Startup Community Podcast. Hi, I'm Brad Feld. Hi, I'm Ian Hathaway. I'm Chris Hively and your host. Your Startup Community Podcast is for any startup community enthusiast hoping to grow your local ecosystem. This podcast has something for every ecosystem actor, whether you're an economic development leader, serial entrepreneur, a co-working coordinator, an angel investor, a corporate executive, or a university researcher. Basically, everyone who cares about your community and the startups within. If we do our job right, there should be something tangible for you to take away and apply to your journey as soon as tomorrow. It's a hot sunny day here in North Carolina, and today we're switching things up and abandoning our topic first format. So far in here in season one, we've released five episodes, how to cultivate a sense of topophilia and why, new community leader, Be active, not passive. Why are networks a better community structure over a hierarchy? The illusion of control, it's a barrier to progress. And what role can government play in a startup community? We're proud of the first five episodes, but there's more to come. These are the most often asked questions we have all heard in the last four, five, even 10 years from you all as we individually and sometimes together speak, get interviewed, or receive inbound email. Today, Brad and Ian and I are going to talk about these first five episodes. We'll talk about the most listened to episode to date and why, and later I will tease out their favorite of the four upcoming episodes. Listen in as they both whine about having to pick their favorite child. What I like about this episode is that it captures what they are hearing from you all after one year post-release of their book, The Startup Community Way. Let's have a listen. Hey guys, good to see you all. We don't get a chance to do this too often or ever as we do our kind of little serial one-on-ones, but here we are kind of five episodes in and I thought we'd take a, a break of kind of our topical uh, format and just get the three of us on and kind of talk about whatever's on our minds around startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems. And uh, we'll kick it off from there. And, and Brad, let me start with you. So, you know, you guys have done... I don't know, probably what, a hundred or more podcast interviews, journalists, whatever. What are you hearing from readers? What kind of questions are you getting about the book kind of resonate the most with you? They're all telling me to drink more water before I talk. So I don't sound as hoarse. I would, I would say the most interesting thing to me that has come out of the startup community way and the discussions around it has been a fundamental shift from where we were when I wrote Startup Communities. When I wrote Startup Communities and it came out in 2012, the the phrase didn't exist and nobody really had a sense of how to organically from the bottom up over a long period of time in a sustainable way, uh, build out this phenomena of entrepreneurship in their city. Lots and lots of people would talk about how, well, once in the past we had this or so-and-so did this, but it was very sort of one moment in time. And then anybody around the discussion was really focused on this top-down phenomenon. And, you know, the book obviously in 2012 made a big change to all that. And that was the underlying essence of the Boulder thesis. This time around, while there's some of that, still around the world. There's very little of it. 
there was a sense that entrepreneurship really had been democratized around the world. There was this global phenomena of entrepreneurship. There was confidence uh, by many people that startup communities could be built anywhere and they were working on building one in their city and that theirs was not a zero-sum game with a neighboring city. Like a bunch of those things were true and had been sort of woven pretty deeply into people's thinking and conversation. But what most of them were missing was in some ways a conversation that prompted Ian and I to write the book in the first place was the question of we're doing all these things, what's next? Or we're doing all these things and it's not happening fast enough. Or we're doing all these things and yet there are still some people who are behaving in a way that doesn't help us. Or gosh, we're doing all these things and we're getting burnt out and tired and we're not really sure why we're not seeing the results that we need to justify more activity, right? So it was a lot of, um, we've made, you know, looking backwards over the last four or five, six years, we've done a bunch of things and made a bunch of progress, but what now? And what he and I were really trying to do with the book and what really came to the front was to try to give people another mental model of the journey and the experience they were going through and use complex adaptive systems as that framing and the notion of complexity and how complex systems grow, develop and evolve as that framing. And, you know, looking back a year and change later, especially with the intersection of the COVID crisis with the publication of the book, you know, which the pandemic was the instantiation of a complex system, it really landed. People in talking to them a year later, sort of understanding many, many more people being comfortable with the ambiguity of the near-term inputs and how they affect the outputs, being less obsessed with, am I doing well? Am I measuring the right things? Are we doing the right things? And much more focused on engaging in what's happening and what's evolving and developing and participating in that engagement versus, you know, check, yes, we did that right which was part of our goal with the way we approach this book. A little meta, but it seems to have really helped. Ian, when you and I have talked over the last few years about applying complex adaptive systems as a mindset or framework for startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems, one of the things I invariably talk about is that when I share that with people, I find that those who are bringing a more engineered, complicated approach, they actually feel like a weight's been lifted off their shoulder right? That they're not responsible for coming up with the plan to go forward. What stands out to you in terms of the questions and what you've observed uh, since the book came out? Yeah. So one of the strongest responses that I've received has been from what we refer to as instigators in the book. These are people who are actively engaged in the startup community. They're helping entrepreneurs succeed. They're connecting them to the resources that are required to build businesses. They themselves are not actively building companies. And in many cases, they have not been entrepreneurs in the past, but these are key stakeholders in startup communities, especially early on. The response that I've received from a number of them is that this work put language and framing around what inherently felt right for them to do in grassroots, bottom-up community building. And so that felt great for two reasons. Number one, it felt like 
we were on the right track, right? There were these aha moments for us and for them. And also that it's going to provide them with the tools to engage with maybe some of these more top-down oriented actors, the more control, uh, command and control approach organizations. And so that these individuals can help them, you know, sort of see the light um, and how best to engage with startup communities. The second thing I would say, which is just reinforcing one of the points that Brad made, which is we felt like our mission was to really explain the system dynamics behind startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems. Some of it is a little, you know, meta, right? It's a little wonky, but I think we did a pretty good job of making it bite-sized and tangible. Even so, it's it's a denser read than, you know, a typical business uh, book. That being said, the onset of COVID actually made those concepts much more easy for people to digest because they were experiencing this phenomenon of the unfolding COVID crisis in real time as the book was coming out. So both of you have highlighted, I think, some of the good things that have either helped people transition from startup communities through the startup community way. And as they've evolved, your book evolved and you're able to provide, I keep using this word framework, and that COVID has been very interesting in terms of helping to seat that mindset. Ian, is there any message that people seem to miss or get glossed that you really wanted to see highlighted? Well, first of all, I think there were many messages in the book, maybe even too many. But for me, the overarching point is that this work, like much of what we deal with in our professional and personal lives, is inherently uncertain, right? And that the only real way to get to a solution is by doing the work, by experimenting, learning, iterating, having that flexible mindset to follow what the data are telling you, right? Or what your experience is telling you. The feedbacks are critical. You want more of that. You want to stir things up to see what's useful and what's not. And so I think people maybe have a stronger grasp on that having gone through this COVID crisis where people are really understanding in a tangible way that we're in control of very little, we talk about this illusion of control in the book, it's still, I think our reptilian caveman brains are stuck in this mindset of of wanting that to not be true. And so it's not so much that the message of uncertainty and a lack of control isn't landing, it's that it takes time for people to unwind those deeply ingrained patterns of wanting those things to not be true. So maybe having the patience to actually let this play out. Yeah, of letting go of not only letting go of control, but letting go of the illusion of control. Interesting, Ian, that you talked about the illusion of control. And so far, that's our most downloaded episode. Brad, why do you think that is? I think it's fundamental. Human beings want to control things. And it's very challenging in general for an individual human to understand how little control they actually have. If you think philosophically about oneself and about human history, right, there's all of these mechanisms that human beings create to try to exert control over systems and frankly, other humans, right? Religion, military, government, corporations, and on and on and on. Nothing new there. And so 
it's not a surprise that in the context of trying to create startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems, there is this sort of deep instinctive behavior of us as humans to create systems and structures that we can control. When one ponders control in the context of one's own life, independent of your, for example, religious or philosophical beliefs, you do have to contend with the notion that there are many things that, that an individual not only has little to no control over, trying to exert control over a thing may actually harm more than help that individual's goal. And it's very challenging, like our instinctive behavior as a species is to try to set up structures of control. If you wander from things like startup communities to science fiction, or you don't have to go to science fiction, you can just go to quantum physics and you start to understand in, in the context of quantum physics, the enormity of human effort to try to understand how this universe that we exist in works, while then at the meta recognizing things like, you know, uh, quantum uncertainty, quantum entanglement, the observer effect, when you observe something, it immediately has a quantum collapse. It's fascinating dynamics. So if you take all this back, right, we have this fundamental need to control things, but the most interesting things elude our control and they grow, develop and evolve without us controlling them. And more powerfully, when you think about a, a startup community, actively not trying to control it allows it to grow, evolve in a much healthier way. And so it's sort of setting up these two dichotomies, the human nature that we have to try to control and understanding the negative effects of that and how many people view that as justifying their experience because they have this illusion of control when in fact they don't really control anything. Ian, when you and I have been involved in various cities over the last few years, getting our hands dirty, helping community leaders. What kind of tactics or things have you seen that helps people see this light that, that Brad has just referenced and attempt with their actions and behaviors to kind of release this illusion? Anything come to mind? So for me, it's about connecting these realities with people's existence on earth, right? More of the situations surrounding us exhibit this uh, illusion of free will, right? This lack of control than those that exhibit that we're fully in control of the conditions and around us and our fate. And so what's been useful for me has just been drawing on tangible examples of everything from how people go into a challenging situation where they don't know what the outcome's going to be and everything turned out to be okay to where they've, you know, possibly delegated decision-making authority to someone and the result, what came back was actually much more creative and useful than they would have come up with on their own. And so my way of sort of neutralizing the situation, especially with power brokers who are used to making those calls, right, who are used to dictating things from the top down is to just connect with them on that human level and to explain that our mission here is to not deliver for you a scripted outcome. It's to instigate a process whereby the right answers will emerge. And not feel that they need to take 100% responsibility for actually engineering that outcome, but to 
relinquish from themselves the responsibility of doing that. Yes. Is that fair? I still think that this is an inherent challenge that I don't see going away anytime soon because the moment that those stressors become involved, especially when we get into how things get funded in startup community development, people revert back reflexively to that command and conquer mindset, which is understandable, but we also, that's what this work is about, is transcending those limitations that we're placing on ourselves. Well said. Guys, let's have a little bit of fun for a second. We have four episodes that'll follow this. How do we measure the right things? The capital issue, in other words, stop complaining about it. It's only one of the capitals that you guys refer to, capital, capital, dollar capital. Um, inclusivity and the role of universities. Uh, if I can repeat those four if you want, but which one will be your favorite? Which one are you looking forward to speaking most about? Brad? Oh, I like all my children, Chris. <laughs> um, but you have to pick your favorite one today. Yeah, I, the biggest mental shift for a lot of people that's not obvious or contemporaneous is all about the seven capitals. I, I think all the other pieces of it you know, are, are talked about a lot. You can grasp it pretty quickly. And they all have impact in different ways. But the seven capitals and the idea that there's financial capital is not the thing that we're really talking about in a startup community when we talk about capital. It's one of seven things. I think when Ian came up with the construct of that, as we were sort of bouncing around sort of how to talk about extending this notion of everybody says, well, we need more money here. And you've got a bunch of natural resources. That was the phrase I was using. You've got a bunch of, and I didn't mean, you know, uh, natural resources like oil and wood. Uh, I meant natural resources like the other six capitals, whether it's existing network infrastructure, whether there's different social dynamics that are useful, cultural dynamics that are powerful, um, all of these things and putting them into a framework where people could all of a sudden say, whoa, all right, yeah, we've got a bunch of, you know, that and that here. And yeah, we have less financial capital, but if we put more energy into A and B that we have a lot of, that can start a flywheel going that will attract more financial capital. And oh, I see how that fits together with that. So it's one that's not as obvious on the surface, but I think in a lot of ways, they're more powerful than most of the other constructs that we've come up with. Ian? You got a favorite in there, a favorite child of the last four? I also love all of my children equally. However, if you're going to make me love one more than the others, let me just make two comments. I would say it's interesting the complaining about a lack of capital in this moment. If you just hone in on venture-backed companies, you know, smashing records of capital deployed the first half of this year. So if you're in that universe of companies and complaining about a lack of capital, Maybe that's bad timing to make that claim. Secondly, inclusion. So obviously a lot of momentum was building behind gender, racial, inclusion, equity in recent years. I really felt like that was a shift that feels feels more permanent than maybe it had that was more episodic in the past. But it's also a reminder that we have a long way to go, right? This has been playing out long enough for us to look at milestones and to see what actual progress has been made. I just discovered an academic paper yesterday that showed how far we have to go in terms of getting women founders the capital that they need and deserve. We've made some progress and we've got a long way to go. So maybe that's the one I would choose to say I'm looking forward to. I'd add into the mix just on the notion of inclusivity, which was the 
third principle of the Boulder thesis in 2012, right? You have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage in the startup community in any way. I think we often get hung up on the intersection between inclusivity and structural inequities. And it's easy intellectually to say we to be in, we will be inclusive. It's a whole different issue and much, much harder to actively eliminate the structural inequities that exist. I think we did a pretty good job in the book of talking about some of that stuff, but the amount that I learned from my own engagement after George Floyd was murdered, which of course was after the book came out, was pretty profound. And so sort of my sense of our ability to, you know, to really understand and talk about inclusivity against the backdrop of structural inequity, I don't think we did that at all in the book because personally, I didn't really go on my own journey around that until after, you know, May of, of 2020. So I, I feel like looking forward today in late summer 2021, the conversation around structural inequity, especially around entrepreneurship, whether it be um, race or gender. And by the way, it's not as simple as that, because no. if you break down things within race, I had a very interesting conversation with two two leaders of particular uh, activity that I would say combined entrepreneurship and the elimination of structural inequities. And they, they walked me through clear separation between the dynamics of structural inequities and entrepreneurship with regard to black men versus black women. And the notion that when black women simply get tossed into the gender category, or when black women simply get tossed into the racial equity category, you're actually perpetuate actually perpetuates inequities because there are a whole different set of dynamics that play out once again when you intersect between race and gender. And of course, the language of intersectionality, which is not just race, gender, but sexual orientation, sexual identity, and a number of other factors. All of these things are structural inequities that even if I say, yes, of course, I want to be inclusive of anyone, how I show up, what I do when I show up, where I show up, when I show up, all of these things can either lower the barriers to that structural inequity or raise them, reinforce them, I should say. And they either increase or in a lot of ways, decrease inclusivity, even when I'm trying to be inclusive. So uh, I'm hopeful that in a decade, especially in the context of entrepreneurship, but also broadly in our society, we've continued to make more progress, but I'll underscore what Ian said, which is, yeah, the conversation's happening, but we are very, 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 very far from eliminating the structural inequities and overcoming the hurdles that those structural inequities have created to inclusivity. Right now I'm working in a small Southern town and I'm seeing this play out in both cases to a degree that I've never witnessed before. So that's just how far we have to go. My favorite answer, I'm looking forward to measurement because as a community builder, I know that people are tasking me and others in order to get funding to do the measurement thing. And we'll have Rhett Morris on, who's probably one of the smartest guys to think about measurement. So that's my answer. Wow, that was some good talking right there, as we say down here in the South. Thanks to Brad and Ian um, for your thoughts and the time you've spent so far. 
and sharing with our audience uh, what it means to be a startup community builder. And thank you all for taking the time to hear what we have to say. We'd love to hear more from you. Simply email us at producer at yourstartupcommunity.com. What are we looking for? Do you have someone you think would be a great guest? Or more importantly, a specific topic that you would like to see us kind of unpack and address? We'd love to hear all your suggestions. And again, just email us at producer at yourstartupcommunity.com.